Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Today, Stack Hodler rejoins me on the show. Now, Stack is an analyst looking at the world from a macro perspective and tweeting out some really interesting insights. So that's how he first came up on the radar. Now, I had that earlier chat with him, and I got him back on the show this time to chat about basically an update on his thoughts, as well as see what he's seeing as the key macro factors to watch. So that's what we talk about in this interview. This show is brought to you by Blockstream Green. Green is an industry-leading Bitcoin and Liquid wallet. It's available on iOS, Android, or desktop. You can gain access to powerful features such as multi-signature, full node verification, and Tor support. So with Blockstream Green, you can secure it using their multi-signature shield. One key held on your device and another on Blockstream's servers and they will have a two-factor authentication applied in terms of signing on that other key. Now, they also have a time lock or a third backup key that ensure that you still retain full ownership of your funds. Blockstream Green is also integrated with hardware wallets like Blockstream Jade, Ledger, or Trezor devices, so you can have the best of both worlds. Cold storage combined with a full suite of features and multi-signature security. Now, for those of you who prefer single signature, that is also an option. So if you're interested, go and get it today. It's over at blockstream.com green. Now, when it comes to Bitcoin hardware, my favorite are the products over at CoinKite.com. CoinKite make a range of products such as the Cold Card, which is a well-known Bitcoin hardware signing device or previously called hardware wallet in the industry. The Cold Card Mark IV has a range of features. You can use it in air-gapped mode, meaning you set up the device, you initialize it, you get that 12 or 24 words, but then instead of directly plugging the device to your computer, you can use an SD card to move the information back and forth, such as the master public key from your cold card into your computer. So this way you can use the device in an air-gapped mode and initialize it offline. So that's a great feature. If you're interested to learn more, you can go and find out more about all the products over at coincard.com and use code Levera for a discount on your cold cards. Now, when it comes to securing your HODL stack, Really, consider multi-signature once you get above a certain level. And Unchained Capital can help you with this. They can create a vault where you hold two keys and they hold one key. In doing so, you can help remove single points of failure in your setup. So a lot of people talk about passphrases, and I know this goes back and forth, but remember that if you have a passphrase, you also need to either memorize it and now maybe you're becoming the single point of failure or you are keeping it recorded somewhere. So it's always useful to really think through your setup. Unchained Capital can help you by giving you a way to easily step up into multi-signature from a single signature setup. Now they've got a concierge onboarding program. They can ship you the hardware. They can do a call with you. They can walk you through the process. So if you're interested in this, go to unchained.com slash concierge. Use code Levera for a discount there. And now onto the show with Stack. Stack, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Stefan. It's good to be here. So Stack, I see you've been uh, tweeting it out hard and you've also got your new Stack Pro Macro. So we'll get into that and all of this stuff and as well as chat a little bit about what's going on in the world of macro and Bitcoin. Um, so I, I thought an interesting one to start is it seems that the narrative up until recently, now just for clarity, uh, for anyone who's not clear, we're recording this on the 26th of October, 11 a.m. Uh, here in Dubai. That, that's my time, obviously, stacks in Switzerland. Um, and now recently, one narrative has been that, put it this way, we're all at the whim of what's happening with central banks. And mm-hmm. perhaps Bitcoiners don't like this because in one sense, you could, I could imagine Bitcoiners don't want to be at the whim of central banks. They would rather see Bitcoin 
marching to the beat of its own drum. So I'm curious, Stack, what's your view on this idea? Like, should uh, is Bitcoin marching to the beat of its own drum, or is it at the whims of the central banks and government? Yeah, I do agree. It kind of sucks. You know, we're trying to here we are kind of trying to replace the Fed, uh, bring in a new monetary standard, and we have the money printer just dragging us around. So it is very annoying. Um, but we can hate it, you know, all we want. But we we do have to acknowledge reality. And I think the last year has made it very clear that Bitcoin is very much an asset tied to the macro environment. You know, it's dollar price. It, it moves based on multiple things. Uh, credit cycles, obviously, being one. Uh, market hype cycles, which we've had in the past. And I think, you know, those are at least partially driven by halvings. Um, but we are living at the end of a big debt cycle. And I think this is what we'll probably get into today. But uh, if you just, if you consider like the the Weimar gold chart uh, that you've probably seen a handful of times, but the price of gold, you know, in Weimar, Germany was just flowing or fluctuating around wildly during their hyperinflation. And I think that Bitcoin is kind of a, it's a similar type of thing where it's the type of asset that you can, you know, one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin, just like one ounce of gold is one ounce of gold. And its dollar price is going to fluctuate uh, when central banks are, are pulling liquidity and, and adding liquidity. So uh, for me, at least, I, I just try to keep my focus on the big picture. So where I think it ends up and how Bitcoin performs in that period. And really, I think, you know, the big picture does favor Bitcoin in the long term. Um, so I just, I expect the volatility. I expect currencies to be, you know, increasingly destroyed until we get like a monetary reset of some kind. But to me, you know, a million dollar Bitcoin is is still totally in the cards and sometime in the next 10 years, I'd say. And this volatility doesn't really, it doesn't really change that. You know, this is just something that we have to expect. I think that's a totally fair answer. And when it comes to playing these cycles in a way, perhaps we could say one thing that's different this time around is that Bitcoin, perhaps historically, it has been, it has seemed to move on this kind of four-year cycle-ish basis, although there are times where maybe it deviates from that. But now perhaps the bigger factor is more about what's going on around the rest of the world. And just because Bitcoin is so small relative globally, right? Because Bitcoin is a market, what is it, 500 billion-ish, whereas right. we have equities markets and bond markets and property markets that may be a hundred trillion or something like that um, mm -hmm. in those kinds of, in that kind of range. So, you know, it's just so much smaller. Now I wanted to contrast some of the different views that are out there. It seems that there are differing, differing views in terms of what's going on out there. So I guess at a high level, there's a few ones that maybe are popular. So one, for example, is this whole dollar milkshake theory. Brent Johnson, uh, the uh, Santiago Capital guy, basically talking about this idea of US dollar being the least dirty shirt in the in the room. Therefore, people are going for the US dollar. Um, and then you've got this view of Luke Roman, which is more like the US fiscal house is not in order, and you know that's going to cause issues. And I think many people would also agree with aspects of that. And then you've got maybe a shift style sort of dollar goes to zero. Um, we've got like a Jeff Snyder view, which is maybe more like. Central banks don't have that much power. It's all about the euro dollar shortage. So I'm curious, uh, I wanted to get your take and how you might, let's say, compare and contrast some of your views with that. So do you want to maybe start with the dollar milkshake? Firstly, how do you, how would you characterize it? And how would you, uh, do you agree with that thesis? Yeah, I think actually all of those theses you named, I, I think I take parts from them. I think they're all very, uh, actually, I, th I don't think most of them disagree with one another. I think they're more a matter of timing, to be honest. So like, for example, like 
Luke Groman and and, and uh, Brent Johnson. I, I don't think that they necessarily disagree. I just think it's a matter of, you know, in a tight money environment like we've had this year, cash is going to be the thing that's relatively more valuable. And and in that environment, yeah, the dollar is going to uh, it's going to crush all other fiats pretty much just because of, and this ties into Jeff Snyder's point, but just just the way that debt is structured around the world. So when when people are loaning money, they they know that the dollar is the best thing to denominate the debt in um, because it is the strongest. And so whenever there's, like I said, tight money like you have now, um, people are going to be trying to pay off that debt and there's just going to be that structural dollar shortage. So yeah, I mean, I, I agree with the the dollar milkshake, but maybe let me take a step back first and just kind of lay out my overall thesis because I think it can, be, it can be kind of helpful here. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I like to keep it pretty zoomed out. And I think there's just like four things that if you have a good grasp on these things, then you can you can kind of know what to expect over the coming years, and it, it'll just help you ride out the volatility along the way. So the first one is uh, the end of the big debt cycle, and Ray Dalio is the one that turned me onto this. But essentially, just in simple terms, you know, rates have been held at zero or negative for years. We're at like 130 percent debt to GDP in the U.S., and so now it gets to the point where you can't really grow your way out of it. Because uh, the debt, you add like a dollar of debt and you only get around, about three cents of growth. So you can't grow your way out. Uh, you can't really surplus your way out. Um, some people think, you know, okay, well, if we just reduce spending and increase taxes, then, you know, we can pay off this debt. Well, we've kind of just passed that point. You know, if you turn the money printer off, you get job loss, falling tax receipts, and then plummeting asset prices. And it just, you end up in a worse debt to GDP situation. So really, when it comes down to it, there's only two options to this or two ways this big debt cycle can resolve. The first is by just mass default. Uh, you know, countries decide to default on their debt. Um, but that just that never happens through history. Whenever a country can print its currency and push comes to shove, they end up just printing the currency. So the, the the way that's most likely to pay off the debt is just by devaluing the currency. And if you know that, then it you kind of just have to wait for it to play out. And and at the end you need to just keep your nerve, stay solvent. Uh, and expect the currency to devalue, right? So you want to hold assets that are going to perform well in that environment. So Bitcoin is definitely one. The second thing is inflation. So inflation acts as a major constraint. Central banks, like I said, I mean, they need to devalue the currencies to pay off the debt. But if you're weakening the currency, that can increase inflation. And the reason that matters is just because you have, you know, real pain on the ground at that point. And so they want to keep the guillotines at bay. They don't want people coming out on the streets and asking for them to, to be killed, right? So to them, it's like the next, call it decade, whatever, is going to be a battle between devaluing the currency uh, and fighting inflation. And so that's, it's probably going to feel a lot like what we felt in the past year, you know, where you have huge asset price swings going up and then huge asset price coming down as they try to battle inflation. Um, so expect that severe volatility. But I think uh, one thing you want to do there is, is look at, you know, throughout these swings, what are the assets that are performing the best in each sort of renewed cycle? So if you're getting these like cycles happening faster and more frequently, which it seems like we are, you'll want to be holding the things that are performing the best and that have properties that can survive in the environment we're heading into. So those are, those are the first two. I can actually stop there and make sure you don't have any questions so far. Yeah, no, that's. I think that makes a lot of sense, and actually, that really echoes a lot of our our first conversation, also. So, so let's say that's the first factor. Then the end of the big debt cycle. What's factor number two? Well, okay. So first was end of debt cycle. Factor number two was the inflation as a constraint, and then factor number three is war and deglobalization. So usually, when you have inflation picking up, is is when you have more chaos in the world in general. 
So it's not really a surprise reaching the end of this big debt cycle that we're starting to have, you know, less global cooperation, more war. Uh, and these are, these are all inflationary pressures. So it really just piles on top of that second point. Um, cause you know, you get with breakdown of cooperation, you get everything from supply chain breakdowns, resource strains, et cetera. So, uh, really what's going on is you have these challengers in, in China and Russia and maybe some of the bricks thrown in and they see the Western world in a, in a fragile moment right now. And they know that trust between nations is kind of breaking down as the monetary system gets more fragile. And so some of them are maybe, you know, Russia, China a bit, they're, they're trying to press on this a bit uh, and make it harder for the West to devalue its currency and pay off the debt. Because to them, they would rather, they would rather the West go down in, in kind of a flaming heap uh, rather than be able to kick the can uh, and maintain their hegemony. So that's what's going on uh, with war and deglobalization. And, you know, deglobalization, it just kind of results from the hostile atmosphere. Uh, but it's, like I said, it's very inflationary as, as businesses need to rebuild supply chains. And there were a lot of efficiencies of the, of globalization, which are, which are going to be lost, I would say in the next decade. So that's number three. Uh, and then finally, number four would be this natural search for a new store of value. So away from us treasuries, which were, I don't know for how long, 60 years or so, uh, sort of the de facto store of value, even for, you know, every, for everybody from private investors, pension funds, uh, but also to nation states, a lot of them, they were holding U.S. treasuries, sometimes trillions worth, uh, because it was just seen as the safe store of value. But so in this conversation we're having, you know, if you and I can figure out that these treasuries are only going to be paid back via the money printer uh, and that there won't be any real returns, then, you know, nations are obviously figuring that out as well. So they do have an incentive to to dump treasuries or rather exchange them for something that can't be debased or seized. Uh, so I see that also as sort of this fourth thing to watch because uh, ultimately that increases the burden on the fed who's trying to uh you know they're gonna have to buy all these bonds and, and there's just gonna be so many and it makes their job harder to debase the currency and, and keep inflation in check so that's that's the top i'd say the top four things that i'm uh thinking about constantly and, and have as sort of my big macro view and then like i said for positioning just expect volatility uh, i want to be mainly pr uh, positioned for the money printer just destroying the value of currencies. So to me, that means Bitcoin primarily, some gold thrown in there as well. And then other than that, just stay solvent, you know, during the deflationary periods like we've had this year. So don't use leverage. Uh, I don't try to time the markets and, you know, I try to maintain cash flow and, and a cash cushion so I never have to sell uh, at depressed prices. Um, and then last thing I'll say, and then I'll stop, but just, you know, expect social volatility as well. In these types of moments, it's like the fourth turning moment where, things just kind of go crazy. Uh, so you really have to prepare yourself physically and mentally, I'd say. Uh, build a community um, and just prepare for harder times than we're used to. It's not to say that everything's going to fall apart everywhere, but it's always good to be prepared because, like I said, these are the times that these chaotic moments pop up. But other than that, just you know, be optimistic. And, and this is just one of humanity's cycles, right? So on the other side of it, it's going to be a better world and, and one that I believe will it'll have Bitcoin you know, as like that sort of core monetary instrument that can guide us into, I think it, it can guide us into like a new era of abundance of energy and, and less fiat insanity. So that's, that's sort of the positive vision I hold on to in the end. That's an excellent way to summarize things. I think you've nailed it in terms of what are the most important factors. So just summarizing for listeners, make sure everyone's following along. So number one, we have the end of the big debt cycle, right? Yep. Dalio talks about this. And I, you know, I think a lot of people, even in the Bitcoin world, have been talking about this idea of cycles, people like Mark Moss or Brandon Quidham. Um, 
And then secondly, we have this idea of inflation as a constraint because the, let's say the quote unquote, uh, the powers that be or the, the governments and central banks, there's only so much that they can do theoretically. Now, of course, we disagree with inflation, but they are going to try it. But at the same time, they have to balance between printing and how much inflation that causes versus the social unrest that would be caused, that's going to be caused because they've already put the world into a bad place. Now it's about what's the least, quote unquote, least bad way out from their point of view, of course. Um, from our point of view, I think, obviously, the answer is pretty clear. It's go to a Bitcoin standard. Um, and then at number three, factor three was war and deglobalization. And what kind of turmoil are we going to see because of that? What kind of supply chains are we going to see get disrupted because of that? And obviously, people might be displaced. And that's obviously going to be very troubling and very concerning for, you know, for, for a lot of people out there. And then fourthly, as you said, the natural search for the new store of value. So I think at this point, it's probably going to be an interesting question for most people to chat a little bit about U.S. treasuries, where they've come from. And basically this question, is the world done with U.S. treasuries? Or is it just a slow process of, let's say, the rest of the world waking up to this idea that maybe you don't want to hold a lot of money or a lot of your quote-unquote value inside U.S. Treasuries. You know, I I know even in places like South Africa, there are there are businesses like larger businesses who might still hold U.S. Treasuries because from the the fiat fractional reserve system point of view, from this multi-layer fractional reserve system, from their point of view, they see U.S. Treasuries as the safe thing because they see, let's say, you know, maybe your bank account is not that safe or uh, for for other reasons. So, what are the ways in which the world is going to be done, quote unquote, with holding a lot of US treasuries, or at least less than they previously did. Yeah, I think, um, especially, in a, again, going back to this tight money concept, where all assets are worth less except for cash, which we've seen this year. And cash can be things like T-bills, which, you know, maybe that corporation holds um, short duration treasuries. So in that time, you know, treasuries are going to look, they're going to look more appealing. But in the long run, I mean, everybody can kind of see where it's headed, which is all currency derivatives. So you know, the US dollar uh, currency derivatives like T-bills or, or bonds, they're all going to be debased. They're going to lose purchasing power. Um, so that's not that's not a secret. It doesn't happen overnight. And so, yeah, treasuries are super liquid. Uh, it is the US dollar, which is, you know, relatively more valuable than uh, whatever fiat currencies on the ground around the world. Uh, but at the end of the day, it is going to lose purchasing power compared to other assets. Um, so that could be things like Bitcoin or gold. Uh, or even you know shares in the S and P five hundred, right? So the dollar is losing to those things over time. So it's just a matter of you know what's your timeline. If it's if it's a short term, if it's a short term hold and you just need like liquidity, then it could make sense to still hold these treasuries. Uh, but in the long run, there's a lot of countries that see this and they they just don't want to be financially repressed. So it's like all of us, right? Like if we see this uh, bond scenario playing out, we're going to naturally avoid bonds. And that's what happens at the end of these big debt cycles uh, until the government actually comes in and mandates people to hold them, right? So, I mean, I found this out recently and I still I think about it, it kind of blows my mind, but like social security in the US is 100% allocated to US treasuries. So there's kind of a captive audience that they can essentially steal from by crushing the value of these bonds um, or rather the purchasing power of these bonds. But what often happens is they find other groups to do that too as well. So they'll, they'll mandate pension funds to hold a certain amount of bonds They'll very often try to ban inflation hedges. Uh, so that's we saw that in the 30s in the US with gold. But essentially what they're trying to do is financially repress people, forcing them to hold these bonds and, and essentially take the loss, hold the bag, right? 
Uh, and so nobody wants to do that. Some people are forced into it. But if you're a sovereign nation, the only way you can really be forced to do it is via war, right? And so unfortunately, that's maybe part of what's going on in the world right now, why there's more conflict is like, okay, the US would like the system to hold together so that they don't have to buy all these bonds, you know, all at once. And it's not just because of that. That's I think that's just one factor playing into conflict right now. But that's one thing that I that I have my eye on. But yeah, I don't think this is something that happens overnight because on the other hand, you know, nations that are holding large amounts of treasuries, they also have an incentive somewhat to hold the system together a little bit. Uh, if everybody dumped their treasuries at once, then pretty much everybody's holdings are worthless, right? It forces the Fed to buy everything with monopoly money and the system essentially resets, right? So I think there's kind of a, it's kind of a game. It's, it's a little bit of a slow move, like you said. It's, it's, let me try to exchange some of these for more valuable things. And we saw Russia do that already. They unloaded a bunch of treasuries of the past 10 years and, and bought a bunch of gold. China's now below a trillion um, in holdings. So they're kind of slowly doing that as well. And then I just saw this week, you know, Saudi Arabia is almost openly taunting the US uh, over this NOPEC deal, which, uh, yeah. So they're, they're, they're kind of saying that they're going to be dumping treasuries as well. They're kind of holding that uh, over the US's head as a sword now. I think they have something like 100 billion something treasuries. So it's not not the biggest deal, but at the end of the day, these are all net sellers um, when the Fed is also trying to sell and private investors don't want to hold bonds because they don't want to get crushed. And yeah, at the end of the day, I think it just ends up with the Fed buying them all. It's just a matter of timing. And the funny thing with that you mentioned as well with the Fed having to buy them all is for years and years and years, the central bank leaders in the Fed have been saying, oh, don't worry, we will unwind our balance sheet. We'll bring it back down. So just for listeners who are unclear basically a lot of the critique was coming from various people people like ron paul as well who were saying look how big your balance sheet is are you actually going to bring it are you going to bring it back down to normal and they kept saying yeah yeah we'll do that but as you say stack if all the other big players start selling all of their treasuries then how can the fed conceivably or credibly make the case that they will lower their balance sheet back down yeah, I mean, the simple answer is they can't, right? It's all a confidence game. They want people to think they can, but they, they can't. Uh, I don't know if you saw the clip, but when somebody asked Christine Lagarde that very question, she just said, uh, oh, it will come in due time. It will come. <laughs> like She had no answer, right? And so it's it's a confidence game and they're not even, she's not even a great, well, she's a con artist in some ways, but she's not very convincing, right? So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think there is a, a chance they'll do it. I don't think that's going to happen. And and just quick shout out to Ron Paul. Uh, one thing when you brought up Peter Schiff, like I don't really listen to the guy because I think he just is kind of like rigid mindset and doesn't really want to have an open and honest conversation. But one thing I'll say about gold bugs is like they were on top of this for years and years, right? Like they were the one class of investors that were kind of holding down the sound money for it uh, and, and calling this out, right? Calling the scam out the entire time, right? It's a shame that most of them just, you know, missed the boat on Bitcoin. And I think the reason they did is simply because, you know, they, it's kind of silly, right? They would, they expect Bitcoin to behave like gold, but like obviously a, a monetizing asset is not going to behave the same way as gold, right? Like it's going through its, it's going through its cycles, achieving its, uh, its, its eventual market cap. And to them, they look at it and they're like, oh, just another volatile thing, but they're ignoring the actual properties of Bitcoin, uh, which is actually an improvement on gold in so many ways. So, but I, I, I will say kudos to them for, for keeping this bigger picture in mind while, most of the world just completely forgot about it. Yeah, of course. And there are, of course, uh, Bitcoin-friendly gold bugs like our friend uh, Lawrence Lepard and um, oh, some yeah, others in the world. People like some of the guys over at Incrementum. I was chatting actually recently with Mark Valick as well. So they they are in the, let's say, Bitcoin plus gold camp, right? So yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I think I would put myself, yeah. I would put myself in that, uh, in that category too. I'm definitely like way more towards the Bitcoin side, but I, I do hold gold and I, and I respect it for what it is. And I see it slight, slight differences and see enough reasons to hold it. So I'll leave it at that. Back to the show in a moment. Swan Bitcoin is the lead sponsor of Stefan Levera Podcast, and Swan are putting on a fantastic conference coming up. It's called Pacific Bitcoin. So if you're anywhere near America, think about coming. It's November 10th and 11th in LA, California. This is going to be a fantastic meetup with all kinds of awesome Bitcoiners coming. People like Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, Preston Pish, Pierre Richard, and of course, many Swan favorites like Corey Clipston, Lynn Alden, Jan Pritzker, and so many more are coming. There will be three tracks in terms of multiple stages going. It's going to be really fun. And this is a great opportunity to learn about Bitcoin and also make some connections with people in the space. So go and get your tickets over at pacificbitcoin.com. Use code Levera, and I'm hoping to see you all there. Now, when it comes to sending our Bitcoin transactions, I like to use mempool.space. This is the next generation Bitcoin and Blockchain Explorer, exploring Bitcoin across multiple layers. With mempool.space, you can target the level of fee that you assign for your transactions. You can search transactions to see which ones have been confirmed. You can run it yourself and host it on your own. And you can also view the multiple layers of the Bitcoin ecosystem. So for example, there's a Lightning Network Explorer. You can search Lightning nodes. You can see what channels they have. You can see the fees are, that are associated. You can see the channel points, as in the UTXOs associated with that channel. You can do all these different features. So mempool.space is a comprehensive explorer. Now, don't forget, if you're an enterprise, mempool.space offers customized instances. So you can have your company's branding. You can have increased API limits and so much more. Go find out more at mempool.space slash enterprise. And now back to the show with Stack. Yeah, sure. Um, and so we were chatting about this whole idea of big players around the world dumping their U.S. treasuries. So that could be nation states, uh, as you mentioned, China, Russia, others. Now, could there be political ramifications or implications if they were to dump a lot of their treasuries? So, for example, especially if you are some kind of state who is protected by the US government, then maybe there's a little bit more pressure to try and that you have to that you should hold their bags as a, you know, payment to your uh, protector. Do you see a bit of a political imperative there? Is that a dynamic to watch? Yeah, definitely. I think at the end of the day, it comes down to, uh, again, this concept of financial repression and almost a threat of force, right? Like in the US, if they have jurisdiction over their citizens, they can, they can force us to hold bonds. But if it's a foreign country, I mean, threat of force via militaries is, is definitely one way they can convince those nations to do it. Or if they're the protectors, so maybe like a lot of these Western nations in Europe, they might be hesitant to, uh, you know, torpedo the U.S. because they fear the ramifications. I, I do definitely think that that's part of the calculus. And I'd say in general, it seems like they're kind of all on the same team. So I don't see strong incentives uh, besides the fact that they're going to lose purchasing power. I also see the strong incentive to try to hold things together. Um, so I think the, the bigger ones you have to worry about are more like the Russias, the Chinas, the BRICS that are kind of like, hey, we have resources you need. So we're going to not hold this bag and you're going to still pay us in whatever we want. I think that's the thing that's coming. And as you mentioned, the um, pay us in what we want right now, I think that part maybe gets a little too much play, but I'm curious what you think, right? But here's, let me lay out some thoughts and I want to get your reaction on that. So some people say there's this notion that, oh, because they are 
expecting you to pay them in their currency that that's going to be bullish for that currency. But the way I'm seeing it is if I had to pay somebody in some random altcoin, let's say, and I and like and I had to do it because I need this thing from them, I it doesn't necessarily mean I would hold more of it. I might just change it might trade just a small amount just before the moment that I need to pay that person. Right. So in the same way, it's not necessarily bullish for the ruble or, you know, the one. What matters more, I think, or let's say, let's say the more important factor is how many bag holders are there? How many people want to hold it? Right. That's the key reservation demand. And that's an important concept for us as Bitcoiners as well, because we're growing the base of people who are willing and want to hold more Bitcoin. So I'm curious your view um, on this idea that just bec merely because oil deals are priced in some non-USD fiat, does that boost the demand realistically? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. I don't have tons and tons of thoughts on that. I, I think the main the main thing I would say is like it kind of depends more on where they store profits at the end of the day, right? right? So if they if they pick something like you know gold or Bitcoin to store their profits in, I think that that adds demand for those types of assets because at the end of the day, like those other fiats, they are they're all going to have their own monetary policies, and I think that that and like quantity that they print and stuff like that. And I think that'll end up having more of an impact. Now, if they, if one country decides like, hey, I'm going to like really limit the amount of, let's say it's Russia, I'm going to limit the amount of rubles I print and you have to pay me in rubles. I think it, you know, it goes up against the dollar, but kind of just because there there's fewer of them, right? Yeah. So I think the other question that's interesting is with the US Fed, right? So everyone's watching them. They are raising, they're going through this rate raising cycle. We've seen multiple um, instances where they raise rates. Now, the big question is, will there be a conflict between the US Fed and the US government? Because the US government wants cheap debt. So who's going to blink first? Like, how does this, how does this play out in your view? I think at the end of the day, they're, they're going to get their ability to spend because I think the only way to to uh, get out of this trap is to debase the currency, right? So that's gonna that's gonna entail spending and probably some investment. If they're smart, they're gonna invest in energy and 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 productive means, and not just you know we won't just have share buybacks and and a bunch of weapons and things like that. So I think at the end of the day they'll, they'll get it. But in in the period that we're in now, what we've seen in the UK recently, and then also just in Japan last week, is like as soon as there's some sort of divergence uh, where the government proposes some huge spending bill or you know cutting taxes it shows up immediately in the bond and, and currency market so that's we saw that uh, we saw that in Japan so last week they actually well okay so you know the yield curve control right everybody knows they're they're pinning they're pinning uh, the 10 year yield so you can't see anything in the bond market but last week they announced they're going to spend 133 billion dollars uh, to fight inflation so it's more uh, <laughs> genius genius government plans to fight inflation by spending money but so they're going to do that and as soon as they announced it i mean again you couldn't see it in the in the in the bond market but their currency just fell through the floor so yeah i mean that was that was one example we saw the same thing in the uk uh where the government you know announced some crazy plan to well i don't want to call it crazy but they announced they announced a plan to spend more money and cut taxes and this was obviously running counter to what the rest of the world's trying to do so you know you saw the guilt market in the uk explode and you saw the pound head towards near parity with the dollar, which was just absolute insanity. And the, this is really what it comes down to is like the central banks right now, they're in a fight to maintain credibility. And so any move like this by the government is going to really, really hurt their uh, central bank, right? So they want to bring inflation down. Uh, they, the central banks know that 
this is all really just a confidence game. Um, and so if governments kind of get in the way and blow up the, the uh, currency markets and the, and, the, and the bond markets, you get what happens in the UK where, okay, they're at 10% inflation and suddenly the, Sun, the Bank of England saying, okay, actually we have to do unlimited bond buying. Right, so they went from they went from quantitative tightening to unlimited bond buying overnight, and that just makes them look silly, right? And so that that hurts this whole confidence game. Um, so I think that that is a battle that we need to watch uh, in the short term, just you know, governments versus the central banks, right? And so yeah, that's just that's just something I'm keeping my eye on. But I, I think in the end, though, the plan will have to be to to spend the money. Ideally, once the inflation comes down. Uh, I think like right now in the in, in the U.S. with the Fed, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get enough deflation uh, signals before having to turn around. Basically, they want to get enough deflation signals before either the Treasury market blows out or they have to or they, or they turn around. So that's what they're aiming aiming for. Um, they're, we're finally starting to see some, which is good. Like there's some deflationary evidence, things like uh, you know the PMI finally falling down. It hit like 49. Uh, which is below, you know, expected forecasts, and then housing prices I saw yesterday are falling at the fastest rate since 2009. So things are starting to look deflationary, and I think what's going to happen is, uh, well, either the treasury market's going to blow out, they're going to raise again, and then treasury market's either going to blow out, or uh, they're going to have enough signals where they can slow down. But like, there's definitely a chance that they overdid it, right? Like, if we think about this, is there anything in the past, you know, five, ten years that makes us think that they're going to be able to control this thing, you know, just right? Probably not. So in all likelihood, they've probably already over-tightened uh, and we're going to start getting some crazy like deflation signals, uh, you know, job losses, housing price crashes, insolvencies going up. Uh, and then we're probably just going to, this is my guess, right? So I, I, I'm not saying this is certain. This is what I think is probably going to happen is we probably get like one final great bond bull, right? So like these, these bonds are at like 4% now. Uh, I think the Fed's going to end up panicking, they're going to bring rates down low towards like zero or one percent again. Bond bulls are going to ride it down, and then they're going to sell the top, and, and the Fed's just going to have to buy all these bonds from them. So, I think that that's that's probably what's that's what's coming. Uh, I think once we start seeing some crazy deflation numbers, that that's what's going to happen. And it's just it's a matter of like, do we see that first, or do we see the treasury market kind of blow out? Right. It's a it's an interesting navigation that they're having to do between um, these two things now. On the UK market reaction, I'm curious a bit of your analysis. I mean, you, you were touching on some of this now. Do you see it like it was a bit of a temper tantrum because of proposed spending and tax cuts under Liz Truss, the former UK prime minister? Or do you think that maybe it wasn't sold the right way? Or you know, was it, was it just that they wanted more spending and they wanted more borrowing? Yeah, I think the, I think the markets in the UK were already in a fragile place just because of the, I guess maybe I should give a little bit of background for, for those who don't know like what was going on this year. But so the basics are you had the pension funds in the UK that needed to take on some risk uh, because of the low interest rate environment, right? Like if they wanted to meet uh, liabilities and be able to pay the the pensioners, then they actually had to take on a little bit of risk, right? Because they couldn't cover it with 0% rates. So uh, up steps our good friend BlackRock who says, hey, we have this thing called an LDI. It's a liability-driven investment, and we're going to help you meet all your returns, right? Like, you won't have to worry. Uh, you just have to take on a little bit of leverage, uh, which means you got to, like, have a little bit of collateral sitting at BlackRock, but don't worry, we'll handle all the derivatives, everything will be fine, and you'll you'll be able to make your payments. Uh, so a lot of pensions, you know, bought this, this sales pitch from BlackRock. And essentially what the LDI does is it uses leverage and, and kind of just 
takes bets on the market with derivatives. And as rates started rising this year, it was kind of the bets going the wrong way, right? So like these 30-year gilts in the UK started, the yield started rising. Uh, these plans ended up needing more collateral, which made, you know, the pensions had to sell bonds to add collateral. And then it all came to a head when Liz Truss, who was the new PM uh, and her finance minister, they put out this like unexpectedly uh, fiscally irresponsible plan, right? So it was kind of, it was kind of like more spending mixed with tax cuts and essentially like immediately the, the debt markets sold off and they, they knew it was the, the markets knew like, okay, this is only going to be funded via more bond issuance, right? So more bond supply, they started selling off and this created a really bad feedback loop with this LDI thing. So they had already been selling these bonds to add collateral, but you know, when the market moved so drastically, they ended up having to sell even more. And so it became this, this downward spiral and the Bank of England had to step in and buy, uh, which, which was kind of a nice reminder that you know, central banks will always choose to print uh, before letting things unravel. So like even with the 10% inflation, uh, the Bank of England was like, all right, well, we have to, we have to buy these bonds. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it was, I think it was mostly just, it was already a fragile situation and this kind of unexpected plan threw everything off and, you know, BlackRock being at the center of it, of course. But one of the interesting things in the end is like, okay, we, Liz Truss, she lost her position. Uh, and then we end up with this, uh, Rishi Sunak guy who I guess seems to be kind of like a world economic forum approved guy who's seems to be into CBDC. So it's, it's just interesting, like the connections between like BlackRock and then we end up with this guy who's like into CBDC. So I guess it all works out in the end, right? But uh, uh, besides that, I, I think the main takeaway is like, yeah, like fiscal recklessness at a time when central banks are tightening uh, can just cause rapid debt and currency moves. And so if there is going to be this debasement moving forward, like it's going to need to happen in concert. So you'll need like nations working together to do it. And that obviously gets harder, you know, when countries are at war. So that was, that was my main takeaway from the whole thing. Right. And so, yeah, as you say, uh, it's one thing to have tax cuts, which is great. But if you're not also spending, doing spending cuts, then it's just irresponsible. And so I think that's a very key point. And so what perhaps what happens over time is that the population become complacent or they get used to handouts or they become used to big government and they expect big government. So then politicians struggle to actually get the build the consensus to actually cut and abolish those government departments until something goes really wrong right it seems that until yeah. something gets really bad they don't have the license to come out and say yeah actually we're overspending and over taxing and over everything we need to massively reduce the size of the government that would be the right thing to do to make it a lot smaller but it seems that in practice they are scarcely able to achieve that right yeah and i think i think in practice actually we just passed that point like we're just past the point of austerity being able to fix things um austerity is going to send people out on the streets uh and then you just have general chaos and it probably is not going to allow you to pay off the debt at this point right like we've just we've had too many free lunches and at the end like something has to there has something has to give right and it's unfortunate, but I think we, we're going to have to live through a very difficult period, um, especially in, in certain places in the world. And that's just kind of how it goes. It's like you, you take on too much debt. Uh, there's only one way through and it's, you know, by printing a bunch of money and that causes tons of problems of its own, unfortunately. And it's just like when push comes to shove, they always choose to print. And then that creates more problems. You get these crazy fiat distortions in society 
you get chaos, you get violence, uh, and you just get general upheaval, right? Like that's when all the heads get lopped off in, in, in France or you get wars and things like that. So it's unfortunate, but that's, that's what happens when you screw with the money so much, right? And so the hope of Bitcoiners is that enough people and, and businesses and, and countries can kind of organically shift to Bitcoin during this process uh, and start rebuilding this parallel economy that's um, on sol more solid foundations. And maybe there'll be some countries like maybe El Salvador is going to end up being a sort of a safe haven for people to go to uh, and get out of the fiat chaos, right? Who knows? I mean, it's, I think, yeah, bottom line is like too many free lunches, something's got to give. And a lot of times it's just, it's the quality of life, right? Or it's even the population sometimes, unfortunately. And that's how this goes. That's how history has repeated in cycles. And uh, yeah, that's the consequence of screwing with the money so much. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's 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 already a hard, even if you rewind the clock 20 years, it's a hard sell to, to tell people, actually, we've been living beyond our means. And actually, we all need to take less. We all need to right. live with less and live with a lower quality of life because fundamentally, we just can't afford it. It's a hard right. message and only libertarian Austrians and maybe others who are maybe maybe a few conservatives who could maybe buy that message. And so the rest of society is just kind of going plodding along, uh, just driving off the cliff. And it's, it's sad, but that's unfortunately the situation we're in. And I think to circle back to another really good point you've made as well, and I've seen you make this on Twitter also, is that how do you blow up the financial system? You get all these people bought into ch chasing yield or pushed further out on the risk curve. And this has happened at so many levels of society, right? So for example, we saw even government entities were caught up in the whole Celsius blow up. We see individuals all being pushed into, let's say, the housing market. So we see everyone, everyone becomes a house flipper, right? So we see mm -hmm. this cultural acceptance or culturally and institutional pushing of the idea that it's you know it's normal everyone should just have a massive mortgage that is a massive multiple of your annual income and we just create these massive housing bubbles and it just becomes normalized what does the process look like to actually unwind that i mean it's it's going to look scary isn't it yeah i think it is i think it is going to look scary and you know frankly i i don't know exactly what it's going to look like it's really hard to it's really hard to see, but I think just generally, you know, turmoil, a lot of lost wealth, especially, you know, bondholders uh, getting completely debased. So, and that, I mean, to think about that, right? Like, again, social security being 100% allocated to US treasuries. What does that mean then if those treasuries don't really buy anything anymore? You have a bunch of retirees that can't really pay for things. I mean, yeah, those are huge ramifications, right? For society, for just security and in and, and general, just it's going to be harder times, I would say. It's, it's, kind of what to expect. And in a lot of ways, like we're already in kind of harder times than we realize, I think, you know, like frogs in a pot type thing. But <laughs> I had this realization the other day, I was in a, I was in a cab in London with my wife and we saw a, uh, we saw an ad and it was like, it had a, it was like a woman with holding a cat and it said like, oh, your cat is your baby. Like treat it like your, your human baby. And I was like, wait a minute. Okay. So the fact that this resonates with people is kind of crazy, right? Like we're at a point where having a kid now is, is like, it's too much for people, right? Like you have, you have the health insurance cost, you have the food, you have the education. Like it's just, it's very expensive, right? Having a kid is almost becoming a luxury in a lot of places. And that is to me, I'm like, okay, well, are we like, we're just like already in a depression then, aren't we? Cause like you have both people working. A lot of people can't even get ahead enough to have kids. And it's just like this hard, this hard environment where nobody feels like they can get ahead. Right. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I think we're already there when you compare it to 
you know, back in the day when you could have, you know, one, one person working, one person at home, uh, and, you know, have more, more than enough to feel comfortable. So I think that that's, that's another thing that we don't really realize is like just the damage that has already been done and the environment that we're already living in. And I think, you know, a lot of us Bitcoiners are, are, are hyper aware of the societal, it's called distortions uh, going on right now and, and how fiat is related to that. But I think it, it just continues to accelerate. And, and, and every time you get uh, uh, another wave of printing, it almost, it gets more extreme. And in some ways, actually, I, I think like this, this down period when, when everything's kind of down, like you almost get less of it. Like, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I've almost sensed like this year, like the fever pitch has, has not been as high as it was like last year, right? Like maybe it's just like the lack of shit coinery, but it kind of feels like a lot of things are less extreme than they were like a year ago. Right. But I, what I fear is that with another wave of printing comes another wave of just complete buffoonery and we're going to have to deal with all kinds of nonsense again. So, uh, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, the way I'm seeing it is we're arguably already in a recession and maybe globally going into depression. But on the other hand, I, I think this is something that we should also make clear. It's that we shouldn't buy into the government narratives on certain things. So, for example, in 2008, they were saying, oh, if we don't do these bailouts, it's going to be Mad Max on the streets. Your debit card is not going to work. You're, you know, like They have a bit of an incentive to exaggerate how bad things will get. But if government simply got out of the way, right, lowered its spending, lowered its taxes, lowered its regulation, and let the free market work, things would go on pretty quickly. And there's a bit of a perverse nature to this because historically, there have been times where, let's say, it might have been a depression, but actually the government just didn't even notice. And by the time, people kept on building and doing businesses and things, and it pretty much got out of it. And really what made the Great Depression was actually government's attempts at intervention because of crisis, right? So crisis becomes an excuse per se, quote unquote excuse mm -hmm. for the government to come in and do something. And what sadly ends up happening is those interventions prolong the depression. And so what we should, you know, those of us who are trying to think rationally and free-minded should make that case and at least make it clear Governments are hurting this situation, and actually we would be better off if they did less than if they did more. But unfortunately, it's, it's, it's a hard case to make, right? Because as we were saying, people have been used to so much, they, their expectation level is so high, and it's difficult to lower that expectation and say, no, I'm sorry, we have to learn to live with less. We need to live within our means. It's not, um, it's not a fun message to hear, right? Right. That's definitely true. Yeah. I think my, my, my question around that, and this is just probably a lack of education in that realm, is like... So uh, like in that scenario, let's say like the government steps back um, and just stops spending, the central bank stops buying bonds, et cetera. In my mind, it's like, okay, you get a bond crash down to like super low levels. You get mass defaults everywhere. I guess my, my thing there is like, okay, well, and, and maybe this is going to happen anyway, so it doesn't matter, right? But it seems like those pen, like all the pensions are screwed. So everybody's retirement is completely gone. Um, so then you have a bunch of old people with like, I guess, what no like no like what do they do to survive right like hopefully the ones that have kids i guess can move in with their kids but if their retirement is completely gone and then you get kind of like a deflationary spiral maybe it's just like yeah look there's going to be hard times there's going to be a deflationary spiral but in the end you know we'll be better off for it and the money will actually mean something again but i don't know what do you like what does that period of transition look like where the government just steps back and you have you know basically all debt gets defaulted on people lose jobs uh, but like everybody loses jobs and then what does that look like in like the restart? Yeah, sure. So look, I think 
I am very much informed by a lot of Austrian economics, as you know, long-time listeners of my show know. I think a really great short booklet to read is called Deflation and Liberty by Guido Hulsman. Fantastic short booklet. And this was written around 2008 or around there. But the point being, a lot of people fear deflation. But from an Austrian perspective, it's, okay, yes, you know, the damage was done on the way up, right? So either way, we're going to suffer. The question mm -hmm. is more about will those resources still be able to be put to productive use? And so the answer is yes, right? That there are still you know, tractors out there and there are you know, computers and printers and all kinds of capital equipment that's out there. The problem mm -hmm. is what's happened is malinvestment. And therefore, these investment and resources have been put into projects that are literally not able to be completed because we don't have the resources to complete them. So what will happen under this deflationary environment that we would go into if the, if the government were to actually step back. Yes, I mean, you're right. There would be some very bad ramifications, but the damage was done on the way up. And so mm -hmm. this is like the equivalent of, you know, uh, to use a Peter Schiff analogy, it's like saying the patient is like a, a drug patient. And instead of going to rehab, the central banks just keep giving them drugs, like just keep jabbing, keep going, keep taking more drugs. Now, while I'm with you, I agree with you that um, from the government's point of view, they see it like, well, we're in this situation, we're just going to have to print our way out of this, because that's the paradigm they're in. Whereas if you're in a more pro-deflation camp, uh, then you could make a case that really, yes, businesses and even people who are working in different jobs, they're going to have to go work in jobs that are actually economically sustainable. But there's no other mm -hmm. way than to go to a sustainable and sound money. Um, and so, of course, that's where Bitcoin comes into it. And that's where, you know, it, it, yeah, that basically the people who get wrecked are the ones who lent out and made bad loans in a way. Yeah, and It's sad because, as you said, a lot of people are coerced. They are forced into effectively lending to the government because in the U.S. case, Social Security is held in U.S. You know, treasuries, as you said. So there's no easy way out. There are just less bad ways out is how I'm thinking of it. Yeah, I see that. And I'm going to read uh, Deflation and Liberty. That sounds like a sounds like a worthwhile read. Not to not to bring it to a to a dark note there, but I think like sometimes I wonder how much of the like if you look at the population chart, it's just, you know, it's gone like absolutely vertical. Uh, well, it depends on the axis, of course, but it's it's really, really grown, you know, past hundred years. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, technological advances. And but I, I often wonder you like how much of that is just this like insane credit cycle that we've been on. It's supported, you know, we've pulled so much productivity into the into the now, right? And at expense of our future. And then how much does that end up having to adjust or how much does it adjust? And that was the one thing I was thinking of like, okay, well, if we let the system that we've built right now, like if we if we do let it collapse, like how much of the population just naturally goes with it, right? So that was a, another thought I was thinking of, but I wanna read that book because I think it'll inform me better on on all of that top, all of those topics. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, look, at the end of the day, we should also remember that uh, you know freedom breathes through these little cracks in the you know in the in that system, and that people will find ways to go and build things and produce things where mm -hmm. they are given an opportunity. Um, so I think we shouldn't be too pessimistic. Like I think we have an opportunity now to create this parallel system, and that's really the opportunity of Bitcoin is that people can start opting into Bitcoin, and over time. I believe, right, those people who are valuing their net worth in Bitcoin and trying to value and price things in SATs where possible, they'll do better. And as a result of 
other people seeing the success of Bitcoin people doing that, they'll start copying. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there's a little bit of an overall apathy problem. I think a lot of people just, they just, they've got their job, they've got their family, maybe they've got a little bit, they've got some hobbies or whatever. They haven't really taken the time to go deep and actually really understand Bitcoin Mm -hmm. uh, and really understand the sociological and economic impacts of Bitcoin, why they should be using it, why, you know, why they should be trying to be self-sovereign, all of these things that we as Bitcoiners, we just take that for granted, right? If you're in here listening to this podcast or if you're, you know, in this circle. But I think as these cycles play out, it will just become more and more clear that Bitcoin is what you should be holding. Bitcoin is what you should be using to give yourself an opportunity. So that's kind of how I'm I'm seeing it. But uh, it is not going to be an easy pathway. So um, I guess let's just kind of close with a few high-level thoughts or, or sort of bring it back to where we started, right? So as you said, the four kind of factors, the end of the big debt cycle, inflation as a constraint, war and deglobalization, and then lastly, the search for a new store of value. So um, I guess that's probably, I, I actually really like the framework. I think it's an interesting way to think of it because it's not just economics. It's also, you have to understand a little bit of the politics of what's happening also. So anyway, let's let's chat a bit about uh, your new publication. You've got uh, Stack Macro Pro. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Stack Macro Pro. It's just uh, something I just started. It's It's really for anybody who enjoys conversations like we had today. Um, I have a couple things on there. Uh, I have like a, a called a newsletter that I put out pretty much every day, and then uh, a private podcast that I put out like once a once a week. Um, but yeah, for me, I just like I, I got really frustrated with most media, you know, reporting on current events and um, economics, et cetera, because it just seems like they don't really take those four factors into account, right? Like they're they're just kind of unaware of you know this end of the big debt cycle and the economic tensions between countries and things like that. So. On Stack Macro, what I try to do is, is cover events with those lenses in mind. Um, and then the other aspect of it is just, you know, having a community that also understands those things. And, you know, we have a forum and a, and a live chat on there. So it's just nice to connect with other people that see what's going on in the world and and not feel like you're the only one who sees it, right? So sometimes we're going through life and it feels like nobody around us has any clue of what's going on. So Stack Macro is kind of just the way I can bring some people together and, you know, we can help each other survive and, and kind of like thrive through these long-term trends. That's the idea behind it. Fantastic. And so, yeah, we're in this time where we have to be flexible. I think people have to be willing to, if things get really bad where you are, like, do you have some kind of backup option? Um, uh, do you know how to take Bitcoin payment for your business or your service? Uh, so that way, if you get shut down by the likes of PayPal or whoever else, that you have an alternative. So I think these are some of the things that we have to keep in our minds just as things are going. But, you know, we should still be optimistic about the future we can create if we can uh, encourage people to look into Bitcoin and really actually dive deep on Bitcoin. So I think that's probably a few uh, closing thoughts from me. Do you have any closing thoughts for listeners? Yeah, I love that. I love that message. Stay optimistic. And uh, I, going back to your your previous point of like, you know, people can always try to create value. And I think there's optimism just embedded in that, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, perfecting a skill at, at your job or, or creating your own company, whatever. I think that that's kind of what keeps the economic gears turning. And, and also, yeah, there's just optimism built into that. So when it's really hard um, or when times seem tough and, you know, markets are <laughs> markets are crazy and the world's crazy, it's, it's easy to be pessimistic. But at the end of the day, you know, we do have agency and, and we do have the ability to, uh, 
to model our world kind of like how we want, even if things seem bad around us. So we'll leave it on that. We'll leave it on an optimistic note, but this was really great stuff. And I, I appreciate that. And uh, looking forward to meeting you in, in Lugano. Yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting you also. So listeners, make sure you follow Stack. He's on Twitter. His handle is Stack Hodler and his website is pro.stackmacro.com. Stack, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Stefan. You can get the show notes over at stefanlevera.com slash 428 and reminder, pacificbitcoin.com for those of you interested to attend the fantastic upcoming conference, Pacific Bitcoin by Swan Bitcoin. That's it from me. I'll see you in the Citadels.